This is episode number 249 with the CEO and co-founder at SFL Scientific, Michael Sigala. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by our very own data science conference, Data Science Go 2019. There are plenty of data science conferences out there. Data Science Go is not your ordinary data science event. This is a conference dedicated to career advancement. We have three days of immersive talks, panels, and training sessions designed to teach, inspire, and guide you. There's three separate uh, career tracks involved. So whether you're a beginner, a practitioner, or a manager, you can find a career track for you and select the right talks to advance your career. We're expecting 40 speakers, that's 40 speakers to join us for Data Science Go 2019. And just to give you a taste of what to expect, here are some of the speakers that we had in the previous years. Creator of Makeover Monday, Andy Kriebel. AI thought leader, Ben Taylor. Data science influencer, Randy Lau. Data science mentor, Kristen Kerrer. Founder of Visual Cinnamon, Nadi Bremer technology futurist Publis Holman, and many, many more. Uh, this year, we will have over 800 attendees from beginners to data scientists to managers and leaders. So there will be plenty of networking opportunities with our attendees and speakers, and you don't want to miss out on that. That's the best way to grow your data science network and grow your career. And as a bonus, there will be a track for executives. So if you're an executive listening to this, Check this out. Last year at Data Science Go X, which is our special track for executives, we had key business decision makers from Ellie Mae, Levi Strauss, Dell, Red Bull, and more. So whether you're a beginner, practitioner, manager, or executive, Data Science Go is for you. Data Science Go is happening on the 27th, 28th, 29th of September 2019 in San Diego. Don't miss out. You can get your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. I would personally love to see you there, network with you, and help inspire your career or progress your business into the space of data science. Once again, the website is www.datasciencego.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show because we've got a returning guest for the second time around. Michael Sigala is joining us. Uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of an AI data science machine learning consulting a firm based out of Boston but operating globally called SFL Scientific. Previously, we had a super exciting discussion with Mike that was back in the middle of 2017. It was episode number 65 on the Super Data Science Podcast if you missed it. And today, Mike is back with even more case studies and more inspiration for you guys in the space of data science. So here are some things that we talked about. Just as last time, Mike shared three case studies. And uh, of course, they were different this time. Uh, this time we talked about healthcare imaging, and uh, we dive deep into neural networks and the architecture 
and design of neural networks. Uh, then we talked about logistics and supply chain and the challenges there. And we talked about things such as uh, bottlenecks and routes and how machine learning can help in those spaces and what kind of projects they're doing in that uh, industry. Uh, and we talked about energy. And in the space of energy, Mike actually gave us two case studies. And some of the things that you'll learn there are dealing with unbalanced data sets, creating fake data sets, unsupervised learning, uh, for anomaly detection and supervised learning with small data sets and in general this challenge of small data. There's just a couple of things that you'll learn. There's plenty, plenty more that Mike shared, including an overview of the world of data science projects and data science consulting in general, which I think you will find extremely valuable and why companies in 2019 and 2020 might actually start defunding artificial intelligence and machine learning and what we can do about it. As you can imagine, this is going to be a very, very powerful podcast. Can't wait to jump into it. But before we do, I wanted to give a shout out to our fan of the week. Um, and this one is from Ronnie, who says, if you have an interest in programming, automation, big data, machine learning, etc., this is a must listen. Focuses on data science, analytics, etc. in the corporate world. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Very, very inspiring to hear that. And for those of you out there who are listening to the show and you haven't yet left a review, then head on over there on your podcast app or just go to iTunes and leave a review for the Super Data Science Podcast. That would be just amazing. I'd really appreciate it because I love reading your reviews. And with that said, I'm super excited about today's episode. And without further ado, for the second time round, I bring to you Mike Segala, CEO and co-founder of SFL Scientific. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Super Data Science Podcast. Super excited to have you on the show because we've got a returning amazing guest with us here, the one and only Mike Segala from Boston's SFL Scientific. Mike, welcome back. How are you going today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to talk again. Um, the pleasure is all mine. The podcast we had last time was an amazing success and totally, totally rocked it. So looking forward to having another one today. How's the weather in Boston these days? Well, it's late February, so we're cold and windy, but uh, not too bad snow this year, so I can't complain too much, but not uh, not nearly as nice as where you're at in the world. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm I'm in Tasmania now, and uh, yeah, like I, like I was mentioning before, it was freezing last night. It's my first time in Tasmania, and the the literally the day I got here, they have like the worst um, wind and weather ever, and it's freezing cold. But but it's a that's, nice really that's nice how day. it always is though right you go on vacation and they're like oh this is the worst seaweed we've ever had <laughs> right like there's always something but yeah. it, it keeps it fun right yeah that's true a bit of variety <laughs> that's where that's exciting um, yeah man it's been it's been over one and a half years since we last talked the previous episode by the way for our listeners if you haven't heard it highly recommend checking out Mike shared some amazing uh, case studies. It's episode number 65, so you can find it at superdatascience.com slash 65. Uh, with Mike, it was in, uh, you know, like over one and a half years ago. So what's been happening since then? A lot. So just to kind of recap real quick for the audience. Um, so I run SFL Scientific. We're a data science consulting company, right? So unlike a lot of these traditional product companies or vendors, 
were purely focused on really attacking this data science market from a, a purely kind of consultative standpoint, right? Truly kind of service oriented. Um, so what that means for us is we get to have a lot of really smart folks on staff that get to work across a really far ranging kind of uh, sets of clients and topics, right? Across the data science and data engineering space. Um, so for us, right, we're really just continuing to grow and move with the market um, as everything in, continues to mature and money be, gets fed into this AI market. Um, SFL is taking a really nice ride along with them and continue to kind of execute on really interesting, innovative projects and uh, just grow the business. So it's uh, it's been a great time. And it, it's kind of very similar to yours, Kirill, right? You know, we both kind of started the companies a couple years ago in the beginning of this space and uh, have doing great stuff. So congrats to you as uh, we've been taking this ride a little bit together here. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. And uh, yeah, you can only say the same. It's exciting to see the explosive growth you had. I, I sometimes go on the SFL Scientific website and even if you're not um, a business owner, if you're a data scientist or you know, you're a data science manager aspiring, highly recommend checking out sflscientific.com because if you go to, like I just go there for inspiration sometimes, you go to solutions or um, our work, there, I like how you have this grid of different industries you've worked in, you know, from advertising, marketing, agriculture, insurance, and then like I click on one of them and I'm like, oh, that's really cool, you know, what have you done in agriculture? Satellite imaging, resource management, crop forecasting, livestock monitoring, those are some really cool things. So. Man, like, there's a ton of industries you guys have worked on. It's it's crazy. How do you keep up with all these projects? Huh, well, keep up with the project is different than executing. Keep up <laughs> is a lot of late nights and, uh, you know, email exchanges. But, you know, everybody on this podcast or listening is pretty educated. So, you know, at least from a data science perspective. Um, and as we know, right, algorithms, data sets, you know, they all kind of boil down to the same fundamental data types and challenges, right? What do we have fundamentally? We have images, uh, we have time series data, we have text data, right? And a couple other types of, you know, fundamental modalities of data. Uh, and what you can start doing is thinking about, all right, if I had an image and this image came off of a, an MRI machine or a satellite image or even a camera in my house, how would I classify that image or how would I segment that image right and if you're if you're really good at thinking through the fundamental challenge behind capturing collecting and storing and then solving the problems of those data types you can kind of extract away some of that industry vocabulary and difficulties that you know very industry specific folks focus on so what we really try to focus on as a company is saying, hey, I want to hire the best in class folks at computer vision or time series analysis or NLP analysis and arm them with that kind of 95% of the knowledge to solve all problems. And then when we talk to somebody from ag tech or from pharma or from finance, being able to slot in and solve an NLP problem or computer vision problem is kind of very, very similar and almost a rinse and repeat because you have that core knowledge and then you can really apply it across all these verticals very, very easily. Um, so that's the way that we attack the market. Now granted, that's not for everybody, but we find that to be extremely successful and we really had no issues with that so far. Mm, that's amazing. I, I love that you mentioned it because uh, we talked many times with many guests about the transferability 
of data science skills that it's why I personally enjoy data science so much. I think it's such a cool industry to be in is because you have, you develop those skills as, as you mentioned, and then you can take, like you can separate in your mind the data science side of things and the domain knowledge or the business knowledge. And you can take your data science skills and transfer them to different areas and very quickly graph that domain knowledge. And consulting is like one of the places, of course, where that is the most evident. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for us, we, we don't think of data science as a point position around algorithms. I actually think that's the least interesting thing going right now in data science, right? Because when you think about data science, all these algorithms, take anything off the shelf, right? Your XGBoost models, your TensorFlow models, right? These are all becoming very commodity. And it's almost trivial, right, at this point to take some data, run it through XGBoost and get a prediction, right? Literally, if that takes you more than 20 minutes, if you're just kind of doing rinse and repeat, you don't know what you're doing. So when we're thinking about consulting, right, it's so much more than just this kind of very singular thought around algorithms. We like to take that very holistic approach of saying, if you're a real organization who needs to solve a real data problem, how do you do that? Uh, and the first way that you do that, right, is as a data scientist to take a big step back and think about the strategic vision here, right? What's the real business use case that you're thinking about? How would you solve this? What's that ROI look like? You know, what do I actually get at the end of these algorithms, right? And you're really thinking through not just the, the science-y algorithm stuff, but also the business stuff. And then also thinking about, well, how would I engineer that solution? Right? How would I do that in a kind of scalable, secure environment where I can now go and productionize this thing? Right? And kind of having that and coding that around these algorithms is really where that interest lies. And again, right, the reason that I'm saying that is because if you're a consultant and if you want to get into this space or if you really want to be a great data scientist, what we find is you know, these just very simple algorithms, they're going to be commodity. And if you want to stay above that curve, you have to really think about that larger picture. And that's also very repeatable across industries, right? So all of these themes make you an extremely innovative folk and be able to be used across all these different problem statements. So it just kind of keeps going and going, right? Yep, yeah, totally agree. And uh, you mentioned just before the podcast that uh, you have grown to over 30 people. Um, what kind of roles do you have on your team? Is like everybody doing data science projects end-to-end, -end, or do you have more, uh, some people specialized in certain types of industries, certain types of areas, or certain ty uh, parts of the data science project? Yeah, so we have two very different groups of teams, right? First is, you know, more of the sales and the business folks that sit under me, but, you know, we'll put them for the side for the moment. They have a great roles, they do their things, but not really for this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, um, actually, let me just stop there for two seconds. So I actually make all of my sales and business people take your courses oh, no as the way. first, I swear to God, as the first two weeks or three weeks of their introduction, they have to take your, I think two of your courses as their introduction to data science. Wow. So yeah, everybody. everybody Thanks on man, the team that's so exciting to hear. Because it's a great resource. It's an absolute great resource. Um, and I feel that everybody on my team, no matter if you're a sales folk or if you're, you know, I, you know, whoever else, you have to be a data scientist, at least some novice level. So, uh, you have great resources. So, that's, so we really appreciate that. That's awesome. Man. Uh, and it's so exciting to hear as well that I, I think this, this stands to show that 
you know, data culture or data-driven thinking and culture. This is, on one hand, of course, it's about knowing your product and what you're selling. But on the other hand, this way your team, whole, like your team as a whole can develop this data-driven mindset. And, you know, like if a salesperson is talking to a client, they might be like, oh, you know what, this might be helpful. The XG Boost or Decision Trees, Random Forest. Really, really cool. Thanks, man. It's like, you put a huge smile oh, on my face. And let me, I'll, I'll answer your other question, but I want to get back to this as well, because I think, you know, a lot of folks that listen to your podcast could be from that sales and business side of the world. And at least me, right, in my team, I run that department. And my, myself, right, I'm a physicist, I'm a scientist, I'm a data scientist, but now, you know, basically I'm a sales guy. And I have a very core belief, exactly parroting what you're saying, that if you want to sell data science, if you want to be in that role of data science, but not a technical employee, it is phenomenally critical that you have that same vocabulary, you understand the real challenges, and you can be, you know, at least a five-minute conversation where you're actually conveying real knowledge about the topic. Otherwise, you just kind of look silly compared to people who know what they're talking about. So uh, it's extremely crucial to have a real baseline there. But anyways, putting that to the side for the moment. Um, on the technical side of the house, uh, we usually have two types of individuals. Um, one is our data scientists, right? In our data scientists, we look for people who are generalist, but extremely gifted generalist, right? I need you on one day to be able to solve cutting edge 3D medical imaging projects, uh, and then the next day doing NLP work, right? Mm -hmm. So we tend to not hire folks who only know how to do one thing because you're a consulting company. That project might be up in six weeks, and then you're off to something else. So, you know, our goal is to hire really well-rounded folks, but we tend to double down a bit in the healthcare market, right? Healthcare, pharma, biotech. So it's really nice when people have that kind of general backgrounds, you know, physics, uh, biology, chemistry, and things of that nature. But you know, really bright individuals that kind of know the data science space. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the one group of team. And then the other side is more of our engineering folks, right? We call them like AI engineers, because they're not like, you know, database admin folks or SQL people. They're the ones kind of deploying these solutions at scale, right? All the way from, you know, very large petabyte size image loads, you know, to real-time data transfer and kind of, you know, model deployments, mm -hmm. right? So we tend to have those two kind of engineering and data science teams, but they work huge overlaps, right? Both can kind of parry each other and do a really nice job. So that's how we set up the teams internally. Gotcha. And what's what's the split approximately between the data scientists and AI engineers? Uh, I would say... 70-30, maybe 70% data science, 30% engineering. Gotcha. Uh, give or take, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so am I understanding this correctly that you not only deliver the insights and you know, find the, solve the problem for the client using data science, but you also help organizations actually deploy their solutions into production and actually you know, on a, have those models working on an ongoing basis, help hook up all the tools and make sure that everything's working right. Is that is that is my understanding correct? Absolutely. And I think if you don't do that, you're falling very short of what it, it actually means to do data science, right? Data science isn't running a POC on your laptop um, with a CSV file, right? It could be. But for most real organizations, they need something much more robust than that, right? That can fit into a real process and kind of take in real data and 
kind of show the results and kind of fold into more of their business process. So it's really critical for us, you know, obviously the first phase of most projects is very simple, right? Take this data, show me that you can predict something. Great, show it in a sandbox environment. And then, right, what we really need to transition them into where most organizations fail short and why most data science projects fail is not because the data is no good or because the models are no good. It's actually because the folks don't know how to integrate these things and productionize the code, right? That's a huge problem we see in the industry. Um, so we really try to be thoughtful, um, you know, when we kind of prove out the POC to show them and work with them to deploy it. Because unless you deployed it, it's really a failed project, mm -hmm. right? Um, so absolutely, it, it's extremely important. Mm. It's, kind of, it's kind of like a follow through, like getting things done. So I imagine it as American football. Imagine throw, one player throws the ball and the other one has to catch it, right? So the data science yeah, side of things, that's throwing the ball, right? How fast you can throw it, how accurately you can throw it, how you know how you can avoid other uh, players jumping at you when you're throwing it, all that stuff. But if there's nobody to catch it, then where's that ball gonna go? It's just gonna land by itself. Right? It's gonna hit somebody in the back of the head. That's all it's gonna do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I agree, right? Any analogy you want to make, absolutely, right? The fact that we still don't have a culture in the data science space around deployment and productionization. Um, I think is one of the biggest issues mm -hmm. that I see and one of the biggest risks of folks not investing longer term uh, kind of in their data strategies, these kind of failed POCs. Uh, and a lot of that is really just kind of comes down to integration and productionization. When you say POC, what do you mean? Just so we're all on the same so, page. Yeah, sorry. Um, so a POC usually is take any, I don't know, take a problem, take a use case, whatever it happens to be, predicting churn for my customers. Mm -hmm. uh, pick something simple. A POC is normally, here's 10,000 historical customers, here's the data, show me that you can predict with some given level of probability that these customers can churn, mm -hmm. right? Pretty straightforward, they give it to you on a CSV file, you fire up XGBoost, within a couple hours you can probably do something, mm -hmm. right? Gotcha. You need to show the business that that is validated and you can do it. But now you need to then productionize this by saying, okay, now I have real customer data coming in every day, I'm collecting it, I'm adding external information. How do I integrate this code and algorithm into my actual workflow, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of moves past the POC into more of a, a real kind of implementation phase. Mm -hmm. So POC is sense? basically proof of concept that you can actually get it done. Okay. Yeah. okay, gotcha. All right, well, yeah, and uh, what this would be an interesting um, sure. To hear from you, uh, who's like in in the field, you guys have you know working on tons of these projects. Um, what would you say roughly is the estimated amount of time uh, ratio between the data science side of things, you know, doing the the work and preparing the model, and the productization of the model? How would you split the time yeah. required by your team onto those two part components? So it's, I mean, it's a very open-ended question, um, and it depends, you know, phenomenally on the project, right? Uh, obviously, um, you have to realize that for us, we tend to work on more innovative type of projects, right? Because a lot of these low-hanging fruit problems, you know, internal data science teams are doing, or you can call some API to do it, right? So you might not necessarily need to bring us in for some of the bigger type of stuff. So a lot of our projects are more kind of that cutting edge, bigger projects. Um, for us, 
you know, I tend to try to run a first POC in the matter of, say, four to 12 weeks, give or take that time frame, right? If it's fast, four weeks. If it's a little longer, 12 weeks. In that, probably half of that time is spent getting the data, thinking about it, doing some kind of exploratory mm -hmm. analysis, cleaning it, mm -hmm. playing with it, mm -hmm. right? Maybe a quarter is spent modeling it, and then the last quarter is spent explaining to the client, walking it through, understanding it, validating it, and things of that nature, right? So the first half of the project, maybe only half of the time is spent with the algorithms. Mm -hmm. And then I would say to productionize that, I mean, that could itself take anywhere from, you know, a day to a year. It really depends on the business and how complex their IT infrastructure is, how complex the data is, if there's security issues, if there's compliance issues, right? That's when you get into the whirlwind of just craziness. So, you know, it, it really, it really depends. Wow. Well, wow. sounds sounds like the that part is the more uncertain one <laughs> from oh, a day to a year. Lots, lots oh, of uncertainty yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm being a little, you know, heavy-handed with the day, you know, call it a couple of weeks, but yeah, I mean, it could be very quick to a very arduous task. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know, and that also shows that there's a huge, a massive hidden complexity involved with data science projects that a lot of executives don't consider, right? Like, if you have a data science strategy, that's something you should have part of your data science strategy. If you're just developing your data science strategy. Not only should you include things like, do you have the data? Do you have data silos? How are you going to break those silos? Uh, what kind of team are you going to hire? Or who are you going to approach about these projects? Um, and, you know, like what kind of tools you're going to be using for these projects? But also you need to include this whole productization of the models. So, 100%. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right, let's shift gears a bit. That was, that was an awesome intro and like awesome overview of, you know, the world sure. of data science consulting, and just in general data science projects. Let's talk about some case studies. So last time you shared three incredible case studies uh, on the show. In fact, they had multiple components, so I would say even more than three case studies. Do you have any new exciting things that you've been working on for the past one and a half years that you can share with us? I can, and I should have remembered which ones I've shared, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick three ones and it'd probably be different. Yeah. Um, and if, well, if I repeat myself, just last you remember, time, just, just so uh, we, you shared, the first one was on cleaning unstructured data with NLP pipelines. The okay. second one was deep learning to detect cancer. And also, we talked about growing organs with deep learning. And case study number three was gaining oh, an cool. advantage in sports betting using machine learning. Fair enough. All right. So let's actually. Um, Let's 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 do a couple different ones as well. So I, I like to always go back to medical imaging. Um, I remember that one I had talked about last time. So we've been working uh, for about the past year or so, and I'll, I'll give you three again, just kind of three three or four Fantastic. random ones pretty quickly. Um, we've been working for about the past I don't know, call it year year and a half um, with a client who is kind of bleeding edge from a medical imaging perspective. Right, and medical imaging is is extremely important for lots of different reasons. Right, so let's let's take a step back and think about why we care about automation of medical imaging. Right, right now you go and you get an MRI, you get a CT scan, you get a pathology reading, uh, and basically what we're doing, right, we're detecting cancer, we're detecting breaks, we're detecting uh, whatever it happens to be. Right, so there's this kind of coolness factor of can I use an algorithm to predict, you know, probabilistically, is this a tumor? And can I do that at a rate that is 
more accurate than a radiologist, right? That's kind of the cool factor. And, and sure, right, we're getting to the point where we can do that and we're getting to the point where FDA clears it. But what's really interesting and why we really want to do it is for, for two reasons. The first reason is reducing variability within the medical profession, right? Because right now, if I had an MRI and I gave that to a doctor to predict or for them to tell me if I have a cancer, you know, they technically will disagree with a group of radiologists and they'll even disagree with themselves at a pretty large fraction of a clip, right? So if we design a system that is unanimous and reduces that variance, we're now getting to the point where we can give care to a population in a very unbiased way, right? So it's a pretty significant kind of implication. Um, the second implication is this actually takes doctors lots of time to do, right? This could take minutes to hours of their time that is not spent with patients. So now you're kind of giving them back all of this time where they can go and do what's really important, which is, you know, seeing and talking with patients, right? So that's really why we want to do medical imaging and why it's such a popular field within, within deep learning and data science. Mm -hmm. So, and I won't go on this long with all of them, but I just, I like medical imaging for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing with this medical imaging project is we have the world's largest collection of 3D CT and MRI brain scans looking for different um, cancers within the sinus cavities. So I think it's like 51 different tumor types uh, that can just establish within your seven different cavity regions within the brain or within the face. Um, so what we've done there is amassed large amounts of data paid, well, our client has paid lots and lots of money for doctors to label it. Uh, and we've built extremely sophisticated algorithms to detect very, very small signatures of, you know, malignant like tumor cells within these 3D images. Uh, so that's the first one, right? And that's been going on for a while, extremely successful, kind of has shown to have accuracies. I can't really say the accuracy numbers, but far exceeding what they would need to be to get real kind of clinical validation. So very, very interesting, uh, very profound right, if we think about the implications. So that's kind of the first one. Mm -hmm. uh, quick um, question, uh, three, what, what do you mean 3D it. images? So it's like, uh, is it like an, uh, multiple layers of MRI scans? Well, an MRI is a 3D, right? So it's not a single 2D plane. You actually have a stack of like 128 2D images mm -hmm. make up one 3D image, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So you have to look across the X, Y, and the Z plane. Mm -hmm. And obviously within that Z dimension, you can have, you know, that's where a tumor might be embedded within two or three of the actual slices. Mm -hmm. um, so it just complex, it's a, it's a very complex problem, right? Because now you've taken a data set and for every image, you've basically multiplied it by a, a factor of 100, right? Mm -hmm. So just think of the size of these data and the complexity of the algorithms that have to happen. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, can imagine. And um, if, you, if it's possible for you to share what uh, kind of algorithms or even branches of machine learning or uh, other yep. areas of AI were you, did you guys use for this? So this is all deep learning, right? This is all uh, computer vision. So, and I just want to make a point here because this is a great question. So you cannot take an off the shelf, you know, VGG 16 or 19 or whatever they have out now and do transfer learning and expect to get a medically viable algorithm, right? The stuff that people play with is great from an education standpoint and you do it on Kaggle, sure, that's fun. But if you really want to be serious about solving these problems, right, you, you're really starting from scratch and designing um, from a research perspective, these algorithms in an extremely deep networks, very complex systems, 
and you better have access to lots of really big and powerful GPUs, right? So we, you know, we write all this from scratch in pure TensorFlow, right? Because Curious is, you know, way too restrictive. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just go to town, right? And just really, you know, these takes a long time to do. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all very custom kind of convolutional networks and, and stuff like that. And you do lots of cleaning and pre-processing and post-processing that, you know, just go on and on to get the accuracies up and up. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And um, why? What? Uh, how do you? How do you guys choose TensorFlow over PyTorch? Uh, I mean, the team does for whatever reason. Sometimes the client um, demands it. Sometimes, for whatever reasons, our team chooses it. For this client specifically, I don't remember why the the um, the choice was made, but. For us, I mean, it, it's not a one or the other. It's whatever best fits that very specific situation. Um, so for this, maybe it was TensorFlow was better for these 3D images over PyTorch. But I don't. I'm literally making that up. Like mm -hmm. I don't know why that specific choice was made. But for this client, it was made. I'm I'm sure for a very specific reason. Wow. So like so many questions. So how? Sure. <laughs> so with deep learning, uh, yeah. very interesting. So first one would probably be. One of the main parts of deep learning is architecting the neural network, finding out or experimenting with how many hidden layers you have, how many neurons in those layers, and things like that. Yep. So how do you guys have any approaches like that you have developed in SFL Scientific over the years on what's the most efficient way to experiment with neural network architectures to get to the end result faster or or is it completely dependent on the project and it it just you know it's a creative component that people let you rely on your team to to execute i mean it's a little bit of both right it's a lot of experience and a little bit of creativity um and now i'm speaking for an area where my team would be much better suited to speak on than i will but but i'll pretend to know a lot more than i really do mm -hmm. um so you have to realize that we, we've worked in these kind of medical imaging problems for years, right? From a kind of all the way from our graduate background for the past several years. And a lot of our folks have been working on problems like this for 10 or 20 years. So we know computer vision and now deep learning in the medical space very well. So we happen to have a pretty good understanding of how to build architectures around understanding and segmenting and classifying, you know, DICOM like CT or MRI images. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we know you know, kind of the computing power, we know the size of the data, we can calculate the number of neurons to say, hey, I need to show incrementally that we're getting better and better accuracies, right? Because you don't start by throwing the kitchen sink at the problem. Mm -hmm. You start small and you start quick to kind of iteratively show that you can make progress, mm -hmm. right? Design a network that you can do, you know, in a couple hours and then show it works. Okay, now we have a couple more hours or a couple days or a couple weeks, right? So you're always building on that intentionally moving in a, in a kind of structured way. So, you know, it is obviously just knowing some stuff and then, you know, being smart around selecting and kind of fine tuning your network and growing that as a function of your accuracy demanding it. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Not okay. a great answer, but it, it's my answer. No, no, I, I like um, what you said about starting small. I think, I think that's important because maybe somebody might be working on a project and they um gets an accuracy rate with a certain architecture of i don't know like 60 percent, and that really is discouraging to them and they completely change the approach they abandon that first idea that they had and they try something completely different but what yeah. i'm getting from what you're saying is that um 
you, okay, you got 60%. See if you can get that to 70%. You know, can you adjust it rather than completely abandoning it? You might have had a great idea at the start. Like, see if you can adjust it and increase, increase, increase and get to that end goal. So the, the point is not to hit the, the bullseye right away, but just like keep throwing no. the darts until you get closer and closer and closer and you finally hit the bullseye. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's two things, right? Great data scientists are great problem solvers, mm -hmm. hands down, right? So being thoughtful about why things aren't converging or, or what can be improved on. Um, and then second, you know, to your kind of number of 60%, you know, I challenge a lot of our folks and a lot of our clients, you know, when we start throwing out numbers like 60%, 70%, 80%, I'll always say, well, well, what's good, right? Is 80% accurate on detecting cancer good? And you know, and it actually invokes a lot of thought and like what is an actual good accuracy and what would you do if it was 80% or 60% or 99%? So you know, when you're a data scientist and you're sitting there and you're building these algorithms and you're getting your accuracy numbers, you know, you really need to think about, well, what is needed for the business and what do these accuracy values actually correspond to in terms of an outcome and, and what level do I really need to achieve, right? So it's, it's not this kind of playground science laboratory. You're doing this for a business for a real purpose. So figure out that purpose, then work backwards in terms of what your accuracy needs to get to. Right? I think that's such a critical point that most folks just, just ignore. Mm -hmm. Okay, totally, totally agree. Thank you. Thank you for that. That uh, was case study number one, medical imaging. All right, let's see. Uh, I have another great case study. I hope I don't get in trouble for this one. We'll see. Um, I'm going to be very, very light with the details. So we do some work within the federal government. Um, one of them happens to be uh, with a client that develops um, in airports, you know, the, the baggage screener stuff that you walk through. So stuff that you physically put your baggage through and then stuff that your baggage that you check in goes underneath and, and, mm -hmm. and goes through. Mm -hmm. So those are actually just large CT scans, right? Mm -hmm. They're large CT images. Mm -hmm. And what happens is as your bag is going through, like you know, you go through the airport security, you're sitting there, it takes a second, uh, and then you have a screener, right, a TSA agent sitting there, and they say, hey, I see a, an interesting object, right? It could be a knife, it could be a gun, or they're looking for other objects like explosives and things of that nature, mm -hmm. right? So you could imagine that these machines might have some interesting algorithms built into them, um, well, and you can imagine. Yeah, you'd hope so. <laughs> yeah, well, you could imagine even further that, you know, nowadays we would probably want to enhance those algorithms by using like a deep learning solution or really innovative solutions. Mm -hmm. So if you imagined all those things, uh, you know, the TSA probably works with consulting companies that design and develop these types of algorithms for folks. So um, we may be one of those companies doing some really interesting work around uh, detection for the TSA. Mm, or maybe not. Or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Uh, but that's that could be use case too. But we won't. I don't know how much I'll get in trouble for that one. So we'll skip that one for. All now. right. That sounds good. Um, but very similar, right? You know, it's object detection, it's segmentation, it's classification around really interesting uh, images, right? Yeah. And that image could be anything, right? And it could be. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that um, it, it just shows that your existing expertise in the medical space with imaging can, is very transferable to other industries such as um, you know scanning baggage yep absolutely mm -hmm. so you know other types of use cases you know we're seeing a lot in these very traditional industries like manufacturing retail consumer goods 
um, where they have lots of logistical and supply chain problems. Um, so this one's not our real sexy one, but it's something that we see a tremendous amount of potential lift for. So, you know, increasing logistics and supply chain uh, is an area where there's a lot of hot press happening at the moment. So if you think, you know, if you're a beverage company, if you're a company that sells a lot to jeans or whatever you happen to do, um, and you're selling tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of these products, the question becomes very simple, right? How can I use an AI solution, right? Whatever that means, some machine learning or deep learning, um, to actually allocate merchandise in a much more um, optimized way. So we have a few different clients in a lot of these big industries that ship, I'm talking you know, hundreds or millions of individual items every day, every week, every month, um, that they wanna be able to dynamically understand how do I ship them, uh, how do I become better about not wasting material, how do I increase my bottom line by you know, just doing that in a more optimal way. Mm-hmm. So we've seen very recently a lot of these industries looking out because they're seeing what machine learning can do over their very traditional kind of rule-based forecasting methods um, just to enhance these operations. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of our use cases just literally in the last couple months have been around that supply chain and logistics. So if you're somebody who's looking at interesting problems, um, I think that most big companies, right, most fortune companies or even even smaller mid-market, um, they all have very similar types of use cases around this space, right, forecasting, supply chain, manufacturing, um, where you can do a lot of interesting stuff. So uh, that's kind of a, not really a single use case, but lots of use cases baked into one there. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of real great value there, right? Very different, right? Very time series like data and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And what you can start doing there is coupling from a predictive side, you know, if you're also doing supply chain, you have things that are failing, mm-hmm. right? Machines are failing, equipment is failing. And the question becomes in that same supply chain, when I'm doing my forecast, can I also understand failure events, mm-hmm. right? Predictive maintenance and whatever it happens to be on those same machines. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing these companies starting to collect and analyze all this information to wanting to predict when their machines are going to fail, how often do you need to take them offline, how will that affect their shipping, how will that affect their logistics, and kind of solving two problems at once, right? A better forecast plus being able to augment and not necessarily need to fix machines before they break, right? Kind of fix them beforehand, right? So it's kind of two things boiled into one but you could potentially do it all together. Um, so that's kind of the, the second use case we've been gotcha. seeing a lot of recently. Um, on that, uh, so with logistics, I see there's lots of components where data science or data science can be applied to solve challenges, but some of the two challenges that I'm quite familiar with are bottlenecks in logistics, you know, like where is the bottleneck? Is it at the factory? Is it at the uh, pickup location? Is it at, you know, through the route? Is it at the end? Um, And the other one would be optimizing routes. So things like the traveling salesman's problem, right? Like how do you get to as many destinations? Like if you're delivering milk to different stores, how do you get to them the most efficient way possible? Um, Yep. What could you give us some examples or like what kind of algorithms uh, would you use in maybe these uh, two problems, bottlenecks and optimizing routes, or uh, maybe other problems and challenges in logistics that you guys have worked with before? Yeah, so so for instance, to kind of answer your first question first, um, you know, lots of different algorithms could be used here. 
folks are starting to experiment and got a lot of success with these reinforcement algorithms, right? You know, whatever you want to call them, deep reinforcement or just predictor, uh, regular reinforcement learning algorithms um, to do these kind of difficult optimization problems, right? Because that's what it is, right? It's an optimization. So if you kind of take a step back, right, a lot of these traditional Markov models or Monte Carlo simulations, very similar, right? You have a very complex dynamical system. How do you optimize across this entire system, right? It's not necessarily the same as just a single kind of prediction variable, but now you're doing it in a very complex manner. So we're seeing a lot of um, interest and movement, especially in some of our use cases in that manner of kind of using some of these more bleeding edge methodologies. Um, others, right, if you can still turn into a traditional machine learning algorithm, right, if you can if you can predict something either binary or categorical or forecasting, right, you can use whatever traditional ML algorithm you, you want, right, or a deep learning algorithm. So, you know, this is a problem that lends itself to lots of different opportunities, um, right? Optimization is a, is a different class of problems. You can even use like genetic algorithms mm -hmm. or things of that nature. So lots of interesting stuff there. Um, and then your second question was more so, specifically. Sorry, on, on that one, uh, do you guys have any approaches like genetic algorithms, reinforcement algorithms, uh, deep reinforcement learning or machine learning? Do you have any of those that have shown to be the most useful or the easiest for you guys to deploy or the, the quickest win for your clients? Any, any comments on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it always depends, right? So it depends on the problem statement. It depends on the complexity of the problem. You know, quickest wins are always going to be the easiest algorithms, right? If you can map anything into a very simple machine learning algorithm, you know, with a, a prediction variable you're going for with some features, yeah, I mean, you could do that pretty easily. If you need to, you know, dynamically optimize a really complex system, um, and you need to go to like a deep reinforcement algorithm. Yeah, I mean that's going to take a lot more time, and the amount of lift you might get there it might be extremely incremental. So again, right? There's a trade-off in all of these things. Gotcha. Um, okay. I, I always advocate very heavily for determining a baseline as fast as possible. Right? Literally, whatever the fastest path to getting a number out to set a baseline, do it. Uh -huh. Then start experimenting and making it more complex. So whatever that means for this problem, right? Start with an ML model, then go to a deep learning model, then go to a genetic algorithm, whatever it happens to be for your problem, always kind of think of it in a very incremental fashion in complexity. Um, yep. That's at least my, my opinion, love right? It. And I think the, the best way to approach the problem. Gotcha, love it. Love the, the establish a best baseline as fast as possible. That's, I think that's golden advice for data scientists yeah. out there. And then your, what was your, your second question? Um, so we were talking you about know, oh, the different types of problems, I think, <laughs> bottlenecks, optimize, optimizing routes, maybe if you had some more to add to those. Yeah, so for instance, one of the, the problem statements that <clears throat> we're currently working on that's a lot of interest uh, is in clinical trials, right? So clinical trials is actually a very complicated problem because you know, you're a big pharma company and you need to run a trial for your medication uh, against a pretty diverse and large population of people, right? Think of something simple, right? Like Tylenol, right? You're not running clinical trials on Tylenol, but if you were, you'd have a bunch of Tylenol, you'd find a bunch of people at a bunch of medical sites and you'd ship them some Tylenol, or you know, they would take it and you would monitor how they interact with the drug and things of that nature, right? That's how clinical trials What is Tylenol? Sorry, I'm not familiar with the US oh, term. Jeez, <laughs> it just helps your headache. It's a, 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 a what is it, acetaminophen, acetaminophen, whatever that word is. So it's from uh, headaches. It's, it's for headaches, yeah, yeah. It's just like, you know, it's been around for 100 years. Okay. Um, so yeah, 
but that was just kind of a silly yeah, example. Yeah. In, in so, Australia, we have Panadol. Sure. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so for clinical trials, you have this problem of needing to send out um, things to the medical facilities for them to be able to run their clinical trials, collect data, collect vital information, collect even blood or other types of, you know, whatever you're collecting directly from the patient uh, and do so in a very complex manner, right? Because you have patients in different countries, um, different ages, races, genetic profiles, whatever it happens to be, you're sending, you're shipping, you're receiving these things that are all highly perishable um, and has to happen in a very kind of dynamic environment. So for them, right, this logistic problem with bottlenecks in things that are highly perishable, that is shipping all over the globe, uh, is a huge problem, right? And it's this very dynamic system that we're applying these exact type of algorithms that we've been talking about. Um, so that's, you know, clinical trials is a good one, but everything's the same, right? If you're shipping a pair of jeans, uh, a pair of, you know, a bottle of Coke, or, you know, a lab kit for a clinical trial, the methodology is very similar, and the way to attack the problem is very similar. It's just kind of that end use case you know, what you call it is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. All right, well, thank you very much. Logistics, amazing case study. Do you have one more for us? I think we have time for one oh. more. Jeez, uh, how about this? What do you care about? I'll give you a use case on something. Ooh, good one. How about, um, let's do um, energy, the energy space. Do you have any on those? Okay. Of course I have some on energy. Um, let's see, I have a few on energy. What could be interesting? So. I'll give you two quick ones in energy. Sounds good. Um, one quick one is a lot of people, uh, if you have a meter, I don't know how you guys do it, but I assume you have an energy meter sitting outside of your house, mm -hmm. right? And that energy meter is basically collecting information on how much energy you used. So it turns out that, you know, two types of people tend to want to screw with that energy meter. One uh, is people from, you know, sometimes not as affluent communities who don't necessarily want to pay the bill mm -hmm. or or affluent communities who don't want to pay the bill. It could be either <laughs> or dr drug dealers who are using an absurd amount of energy and that speed that peaks some kind of, you know, alarm, but they need to, you know, hide that. Wow. So what you can do is you, you actually take a magnet to the outside. I've never done it, but I've been told you take a magnet to the outside and you can actually trick. Uh, the smart meter or whatever it is from the reading and it shows much less consumption than what you're actually having. Mm -hmm. So we did some work with a large energy company out in the UK that was running into a lot of these problems, right? So people were literally putting magnets on their meters outside, uh, fooling the system. And they were, you know, people fooling it because they didn't want to pay the bill or drug dealers. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question was, can you take all of that time series data, right? Because it's very temporal time series data um, and look for patterns that would be anomalous that they think um, corresponds to somebody kind of adding these fraudulent activities. Mm -hmm. So we were given a pretty large set of data, but a very, very small set of label data, right? Literally only like a few 10 or 20, you know, labeled cases of these anomalies. So we attacked the problem a couple different ways, both in a supervised and an unsupervised manner. We did a lot of different things to be really thoughtful about it. Uh, and we were able actually to show you know, you can spot these anomalies and you can really see when people are gaming the system from an energy perspective, right? So that's kind of a, a one quick use case. Uh, just um, quickly on that, that's, that's very interesting because ahead. you had only 10 to 20 examples like, um, like in, in a spreadsheet or like in a database with millions of rows of 
for you know like uh, negatives results you only had 10 yeah. to 20 positives how do you deal with situations like that what, what is your advice to data scientists out there how do you attack a problem where you only have 20 under 20 examples of what is a positive outcome that you are actually trying to identify yeah, so this happens a lot of times, right? We actually fool ourselves that big data is the challenge. Uh, the actual challenge is small data, right? Big data is not a challenge, right? It's just, eh, okay, we have big data. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get into a lot of these cases where you have very small labeled positive examples. So you have to be very thoughtful about it, right? You know, you could theoretically create fake data sets to encapsulate very similar behavior, right, through that kind of same simulation and modeling, right? So you could do that. Or you can start attacking the problem, right? Because you could treat this as an anomaly detection, right? Pretending you didn't know any label data, can you actually spot anomalies? And you have, you know, 10 or 20 in your back pocket to think about. Or you turn it into a supervised learning problem with a very, very small holdout set, right? And, and find an experiment with it, right? So there's, there's lots of different scenarios, but you know, again, right, it's really about being a problem solver and thinking about can you do something that's convincing enough to yourself from a technology standpoint that it's working and can you make a business case that it should be implemented? So, right, there's lots of different ways to solve a problem, but you have to do it in a kind of systematic way and be thoughtful about it. That's so cool. I love your three examples just to recap on those that um, create fake data sets uh, anomaly detection, so pretend you don't even have those 20 and see what the algorithm will do, completely unsupervised, or supervised learning with a very small holdout data set. I'll probably just add to that that it's also important to talk with the client, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would think it's important to talk to the client and understand how, um, how important for them are false positives and false negatives. So in your case, in this case of an energy company, is it really bad if you have a high rate of false positives? Would they prefer high rate of false positives or high rate of false negatives? So if you like identify more um, cases where people are allegedly trying to trick the meter, how difficult is, them, is it for them to ask the electrician next time they go out on site to check if there's a magnet on the box or not? So based on that um, conversation with the client, you can... Um, you can fine-tune your algorithm to either output more um, findings in terms of like these anomalies or less. And in some cases, it might be not. I don't think in, in the case of energy, it would be as bad as, say, in the case of med medicine, where you you know a false yeah. positive can actually change somebody's life. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, in, in what you said is it's the real critical part and what the real kind of mindset needs to be. Uh, is how do you tweak this algorithm to actually fit what we care about capturing? And what does that cost, right? Because the question is really, what would that cost for the electrician to go back and report it? Mm -hmm. And then, well, how would they report that? And where's that data stored, right? You get into this kind of cascading effects of what your algorithm actually mandates to the business to actually have to implement. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's not a trivial problem. That's actually where the real ingenuity and kind of problem solving comes in and kind of tweaking that outcome to actually be effective. So, I mean, you're you're 100% on there. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so that was the first one on energy, and the second one? Uh, second one, uh, let's see, we have a few. So the other one we were doing, um, kind of similar, a little bit different. So this is energy as related to internal devices in the home. Mm -hmm. um, and the question for them is, 
if I had all of the kind of time series data of the meter coming in, can I understand which appliance that data is coming from, mm -hmm. right? So there's this concept of energy disaggregation, meaning if I only gave one overall signal, can I see what came from the refrigerator or the microwave or the TV or whatever else mm -hmm. it's happens to be. So again, right, it's a very interesting class of algorithms where you can kind of look at consumption patterns and then kind of detangle them in terms of understanding exactly where your consumption comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, and why you'd want to do that is, right, because you would be able to show, hey, your appliances over here are causing 80% of your bill, right? Get something more efficient or unplug it or do something of that nature, right? So it's this really kind of personalization that is happening especially within these big energy companies that want to kind of re, you know, get consumer buy-in and kind of always have consumers coming back and never leaving them is to showing them these kind of innovative solutions towards some of their energy bills and outputs and things of that nature, mm -hmm. especially as we become a greener and greener society. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a very interesting one and actually showed extremely promising results as well. Um, that, that that company is using mm -hmm. and so well, how <laughs> how do how how do you go about a problem like that how do you, do you disaggregate uh, components of a signal yeah so i i mean this was actually a while ago so if i remember correctly and i can be completely wrong here i think we had a pretty small training set as well of you know they had a couple houses or dozen houses or hundred houses i don't remember at this point um, that actually had smart meters plugged into all of the devices. Mm -hmm. So you were able to see, right, a real training set of here's the total consumption and here's what all the devices were, which was fine, right? You can show that. Mm -hmm. Now the question becomes on a very new house, does that algorithm actually transfer over and is it generalized? Mm -hmm. um, so that's really the big question. Mm -hmm. And I think we used... So I think we use two different approaches. The first being a lot of these Markov models, mm -hmm. um, you know, hidden Markov models, I, I believe had worked really well for this case. Um, this was maybe about two years ago when deep learning was still kind of in its infancy, not really infancy, but really being used, especially for time series. So I think we started playing around with some deep learning in the time series space there as well. Uh, and that was showing some really nice progress, but we were we were able to achieve what they wanted to in those kind of Markov models, mm -hmm. uh, and they kind of took that and ran with it. So it was a, if I believe, if I remember correctly, that's how we attacked that problem back then. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Mike, thank you so much for sharing those case studies. Uh, ama amazing. Uh, the uh, imaging, medical imaging, logistics, energy case studies. If our listeners want to, uh, if you guys want to check out more case studies, as I mentioned at the start. Head on OHSFLScientific.com and they have a tab there called Solutions or the other one is Our Work and you can read quite a bit about di different use cases in different industries. Um, before we finish up, because we're slowly getting to the end of the this super exciting podcast sure. which could probably go on for a few more hours. But before we finish <laughs> up, I wanted to ask you on a, a question, that I, like a more philosophical question I like to ask guests sometimes and that sure. is from where you stand and from all these projects and clients and industries and approaches and employees, you've seen yep. uh, people, you've seen in data science, where do you think the field of data science is going and what do our listeners need to look out for to prepare for the future that's coming ahead? Whew, it's a tough question. Um, are you asking that as somebody who wants to get into the data science space as a data scientist, or are you asking that in terms of where do I think industries are going? 
Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, how about we do both? How about we do both? What, what's your view on both of those? All right, so both of them, we'll go quick because I don't, I, yeah, we could talk for a long time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get too talkative. Um, so let's start easy, data scientists. So I think, um, and we see this a lot, right? I'll have an open rec, and by the way, we have lots of open recs. If somebody wants a job, come talk. Um, but we see more and more people wanting to become data scientists transitioning into the space. Um, so there's a lot of great potential uh, money being invested in people honing their skills with courses like the ones you teach, people going to conferences like the ones that you guys give, right? A lot of great mind share, knowledge share, and things of this nature, which are so much easier than when I started, you know, about six years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's going to continue to happen. However, I think algorithms themselves are beginning to come and already are kind of becoming very commodity, right? You know, everybody nowadays can fire up XGBoost and run something that doesn't make you a good data scientist. That makes you extremely commodity in your job. Um, I think data science is going to start to become a wider role that is going to be, as we're talking about here, right? It's really problem solver. How do you take a business problem and solve it with data, right? That's really the big question here. And unless you're capable of thinking about the larger problem and the impact that it has on the business and how you're actually going to take that algorithm and actually allow your business to generate revenue or cut cost, you're probably not going to be a very successful data scientist, especially as these tools become more and more efficient and will start to automate some of your job away. Mm -hmm. So I really think the trend in our industry will also be to automate out some of our own data scientists who are doing just kind of very routine type of work. Mm -hmm. um, but the ones that survive and do a great job, I think are going to be probably one of the most critical uh, folks within the company by, by, by far. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really how I see that transition happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I actually don't think that that's far away. I think within the next 12 to 24 months, so maybe the next time we talk on one of these, mm -hmm. uh, we'll start to see that already. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In terms of, and let me know if that didn't answer your No, that, that totally makes sense. I just want to add here that Please. from my experience, because uh, I, um, for listeners who don't know, I worked at Deloitte for two years as uh, in the data science division. And what I can definitely say and probably you you've gathered from this conversation we're having here with mike that being in consulting really helps with that be, uh, becoming a problem solver understanding how to not just like do a cool project or a cool algorithm but think of the business as a whole so uh, if you are looking for a job i just want to reiterate mike's call give mike a, a shout out and or shout <laughs> contact mike on linkedin or somewhere else and chat to him because you know, a few years in consulting really puts puts you the whole game of data science into a different perspective. Not to say that you can't get there on your own without consulting. If uh, if that if you're in an industry, that's totally fine as well. Um, just from experience, I know that consulting is a great way to get to that type of mindset. Yeah, I mean, I tell my my new employees like within twelve months, they'll probably have more project depth and skills than somebody who sits in a single kind of vertical for 10 years. Um, just the breadth of project and the depth that we get to get into extremely quick. Uh, it's exciting, right? But it's hard, right? Yeah. It, it's not stagnant and you're always kind of thinking and moving on your feet. So it's not for everybody, but uh, I love it. Totally. Um, and then, you know, in terms of businesses, I, you know, I, I think we're really at this critical junction in terms of where data science will go. Um, we see industries starting to invest for sure. They invest kind of small pockets of money 
on a few small initiatives, right? You know, the big companies that make the media hype, the Apples, the Googles, the Airbnbs, th those, are, those aren't even relevant, right? Those are the, the outliers, the, the anomalies. I'm talking about the other 99% of the market. Um, they, and we know, right, we work with so many of them. Uh, they, they see that there's a lot of interest out there, there's a lot of innovation happening, and there's a lot of hype and potential. So they're starting to make you know, strategic bets into this space by funding a couple POCs, proof of concepts, hiring a few individuals or a larger team, depending on you know, the, um, the organization. Um, but we're, we're really at that critical point where now in the beginning of 2019, over the next kind of nine months, a lot of folks have budgeted data science into this 2019 workflow that need to start paying off, right? They need to see real revenue generated or you know margins decrease by you know better automation and cutting costs and things of that nature or margins increase sorry so i think if we don't start delivering past pocs and really start embedding algorithms into you know deeper kind of production workflows it's actually going to take a big hit and a big step back and people will start defunding ai into their 2020 and 2021 plans uh, and i honestly think that right so there's a lot of folks that, you know, very me too-ish, right? Here's a, a fun app on Instagram, and I just want to go and repeat that and kind of, you know, play off of them. And you're always going to see that in the market, right? But that's, that's quickly going to become cannibalized in this AI space when you have all these big, you know, IBM commercials and Microsoft commercials that are really hyping AI and people are investing. They need to see something very quickly pay off or we're just not going to continue to get funding and this market will start to slow for sure. Mm -hmm. So it's up to you, the listeners, right? You have so many great listeners on this podcast that are the ones in the trenches. Uh, and I say that wholeheartedly. Like I think that your audience is by and large some of the greatest audience, especially in the data science space that I've interacted with. And I still get I, literally every week people inbounding about your podcast and what you're doing. And they come to me and say, oh, I heard you on Curl's podcast. It's great. So you definitely are driving the correct audience. So it's kind of all of our responsibilities as data scientists to ensure that these projects are successful. And we don't just kind of cannibalize ourselves in the next year or two and not get any bigger funding because then we're all going to be out of the job. So that's honestly how I think the market is going to mature. Fantastic. So that uh, ties back into that productization discussion that we had. Don't for data scientists out there, sure. don't just leave your project. You know, like it, it feels very satisfying to find the insights and deliver them. Talk to your manager, boss, client, whoever it is you're talking to, and uh, consult them, advise them on next steps on how they can actually put that in production. Follow up with them. Go back in a few weeks and. Um, check if your model is performing, if it's deteriorating, if it needs some maintenance, and you know, like, be proactive in that post delivery. It's, it's kind of like marriage, right? You get married, you don't just stop there. You have to keep dating. You have to, your wife. I mean, <laughs> you have to, or husband. You have to keep, um, you know, like uh, caring after each other. It's not. It's not like you won the game once you got married. You, you, there's lots more. And now, now it's the the aftermath and the the commitment that comes afterwards. I see you've been well-trained as a husband. <laughs> not, not a husband yet, uh, my friends, well, but yeah. I mean, soon to be. Soon yeah, to be one day, one day. Nature. One day, good for you. Yeah. Um, Mike, I wanted to ask you, how many clients have you guys worked with? It's not a secret, just curious. Oh, jeez. Um, I don't know the number, but it's in the hundreds. Well, well you yeah, guys. I, I, don't know the, I don't know the number, but doing, it's doing really well. All right. Yeah. 
Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. Being a huge pleasure. Before I let you go, uh, what are what are some of the best ways for our listeners to contact you, whether they are interested in um, working with you or whether they're interested in maybe joining your team? Please um, come to the website, um, sflscientific.com. Uh, there is a place there. I think you could either chat with us or you could inbound an email. That all comes directly to my folks who tell me right away. If you're looking for a job, uh, that HR, I think we have like an HR jobs page um, that gets looked at. I tell you, we, we interview almost a person a day at this point. Um, a lot of them you know, are great candidates, but for whatever reason don't work out. So we're always looking for really great folks. So if you inbound to us, I guarantee one of our folks will see it in, in a few minutes and reply back accordingly. Um, so please, uh, be in touch. That's probably the best way to get in touch is just through the website. Okay, great. And is it okay for people to connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Of course. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks so much. Of course, we'll share all of those links on the show notes. And on that note, Mike, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing amazing case studies and your view on the world of data science. Yeah, and thank you so much. It's always an honor and pleasure to see your progression as well. So best of luck with you and and hope we can talk again soon. So there you have it. That was Mike Segala from SFL Scientific. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and got a lot of valuable takeaways uh, from the show. If you'd like to connect with Mike, uh, hit him up on LinkedIn. You can find the URL as well as all the other materials mentioned uh, on the episode in the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 249. That's superdatascience.com slash 249. There you can also find the transcript for this episode if you'd like to read it. And my personal favorite part for today was the challenge of small data, dealing with unbalanced data sets and the three approaches that Mike shared with us, uh, ranging from creating fake datasets to unsupervised anomaly detection to supervised learning with small with a small holdout dataset. Some very exciting stuff. And of course, apart from just the challenges of small data, there were plenty of other valuable gems shared by Mike. And I'd like to reiterate uh, again the call to action by uh, from Mike and uh, the team at SFL. If you're looking for a job and you'd like to join consulting, then go head on over to SFL Scientific uh, and look for the careers page and apply there. If you're a business owner, an executive, a director, and you would, you're, you have some challenges that you think can be solved with machine learning, you'd like to explore the space of AI and data science, then hit up Mike, don't hold back, and see how SFL Scientific can help your business grow and become even more competitive. And on that note, if you're enjoying the Super Data Science Show, make sure to head on over to iTunes or to your favorite app for playing podcasts and leave us a review there. I would really appreciate it. I love reading your reviews. Thanks so much. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.